Hi, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm your host, Mary Fran Johnson, the CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media. This video show and podcast is produced with the support of CIO.com and the digital media division of Foundry, an IDG company. We're streaming live to you right now on LinkedIn and on our CIO channel on YouTube. And we cordially invite our viewers to send in and respond with your own questions to our guests today. We have editors watching the feed and they will make sure to pass your questions along so we can ask them in real time to my guests. And this is an unusual show for CIO Leadership Live because I have not just one guest, but two. I'm joined today by Carl Pierberg, who is the Senior VP and CTO of Strategy and Innovation at AMB Sports and Entertainment. Headquartered in Atlanta, AMB Sports and Entertainment includes the National Football League's Atlanta Falcons, the Major Soccer, Major League Soccer's Atlanta United, and the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Last year, the franchise value of the Falcons was estimated at $4.7 billion. Carl brings a great depth of software engineering, expertise in IT, and data analytics. He started out in consulting before joining the Chicago Bears as their IT manager of football systems in 2002. Three years later, in 2005, he moved to the Atlanta Falcons, holding various positions there as director and then later senior director of football systems. Since 2018, in 2005, he moved to the Atlanta Falcons. I said that already. Since 2018, he has worked for the Falcons parent organization, AMB Sports, as their vice president of technology, data and analytics, and then Chief Technology Officer, and then in March of last year, added the position of Senior Vice President of Strategy and Innovation to his roster of CTO responsibilities. Joining Carl and I today also is Jeremy Duval. He is the CEO of Atlanta-based Seven Factor Software and a longtime software engineering pal who hangs around with Carl. We're gonna, you're gonna hear a lot about the things they talk about over beers. Jeremy founded Seven Factor Software in 2017 as a cloud native software engineering as a service company. His team works with tech forward enterprises such as the Atlanta Falcons, as well as other ambitious startups. He has more than a decade of software engineering experience building and advising others. And he's also a contributor to InfoWorld, which is one of CIO's sister publications, where he's written very candidly about developer issues and concerns. Most recently, he's been a regular guest host on Foundry's Today in Tech podcast, joining my longtime editorial colleague and show host, Keith Shaw. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. It's really nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to be here. Okay, now two of the biggest topics we're going to dive into today are the fan experience, the which other CIOs, it might be the customer experience, but it's the fan experience here. And that'll be a lot from Carl's side of the roster. And then with Jeremy, we're, Jeremy, we're also going to get into the developer experience and various ways that CIOs and senior IT leaders could be paying more attention and doing a better job of making sure developers are staying with their organizations. 
But before we get into that, let's start with the story of what brought you two into each other's professional orbits. Jeremy, you want to start on this one? Yeah, for sure. So Carl and I have a mutual friend uh, mm-hmm. that I got an introduction through a friend of a friend because uh, I was looking for um, basically a coach. Back when I started my business, it was all mm-hmm. uh, just me figuring things out. And and anyone who's done that, uh, you, you kind of want to mm-hmm. find smart folks to advise you as quickly as possible, yeah. uh, especially if you know you're not the smartest uh, seat in the house. So I found a friend of a friend and we got an introduction to Carl. And the thing that I noticed most about Carl is that he was struggling with some of the same things that I was at that time. We were both sort of building our businesses at the same time. And we hung out and spent time together and really started just basically complaining to one another yeah. <laughs> about the types of issues. It's like, man, this sucks. How you know? I want to fire that person. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but those, those kinds of conversations <laughs> where it's like you can't have candid chats with with you know people in your orbit, especially when you're a leader in a company. And I needed that, and I got that through through Carl. Well. Yes. And- Carl, you you said you, you grew grew up in a sports front office essentially, mm-hmm. um, because before you were a football director of systems, you were actually a football player. So college, you understood yes. you understood a lot of the issues, um, sure. but it, it can end up feeling like a very lonely experience. I take it becoming the boss of all the the IT folks around you. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's, it's, it's funny. You, you use the word IT, IT folks. When, when you're a, a developer and you're an analyst, you know, a, a database architect, wherever you are, you're almost even a little bit isolated within the IT folk. You know, you're, okay. you're having to do a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I say my job as CTO, it's half HR, half PR. We were having to go out and like sell what you're doing, explain what you're doing. I do a ton of listening, um, which is really an important skill set to have as a CTO. And then uh, bring that back together uh, and actually develop. Then you have to turn around and actually build something out of it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's where I think Jeremy and I really kind of gravitated towards each other was, you know, we had to play both hats, right? We had to yeah. play the listening hat and the, okay, what is it? What are my, my clients in this case, coaches or scouts um, really need? Um, and then turn around and be like, okay, now how do I actually do this? How do I actually pull this off? And a lot of times you're a development team of one, maybe two. Um, and, you know, I think that's where we kind of locked on to each other is, you know, we're both kind of in that doer mindset where I think when you, when I think about what I've romanticized in my head anyway about what large scale corporate development is, is it's product owners and it's maps and it's, you know, really, really super clean backlogs and, you know, real well-groomed stories and all that. Sometimes we're like, hey, you know, I'm pushing code in between rounds of the draft sometimes, you know, and it's, yep. it's, it's just kind of mm-hmm. funny that way. So our ability to kind of just share in that pain of, you know, having to be agile and responsive at the same token, you got to build sustainability in or else you end up just, you know, beating yourself down. Well, and you both pointed out that Jeremy, of course, started with a smaller group. Your company is now over 50 people. Mm -hmm. But Carl, you still have, it's a small but mighty team that's doing things for the Valkyries. We've grown. It's it's been Mm -hmm. good. Um, and, and we've, you know, again, I think that's been a testament to, um, our organization and, uh, our, our, our owner, you know, basically saying, Hey, we, we need to get better and we need to expand and grow. And there is no finish line. You look at our, our values really drive that and things like innovate continuously. You know, I, I think that that's really important. And we've hired leaders that, 
you know, thankfully we can talk with and we can explain, you know, hey, here's what we're doing. I mean, some of those things we've talked about doing, it's hard to draw those direct lines between, hey, if you give me this, I guarantee we're going to get X, you know, times two. A lot of times it is aspirational and um, to have the support of leadership like that is um, is really important, be it on the, on the football yeah. side or the business side. So. Well, let's let's talk through some of the technology and the driving yeah. forces with the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, which, yeah. uh, if I've been told correctly, is the lar- one of the, the the largest and the busiest stadium in the world. We we like to think so. It's we 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 kind of refer to it. And I don't know if there's an official metric on this as the largest major <laughs> event stadium in the world. Okay. Um, and, you know, I mean, we, we pride ourselves on that. We think it's, first of all, the most unique and iconic looking. It looks like you don't, you don't mistake Mercedes Benz for anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're at Mercedes Benz, you don't mistake it for anything other than what it is. It is, it is the most amazing stadium you'll ever go to. And it's our job and our mandate to keep it that way. Um, yeah. you know, we've recently thrown out kind of this vision of we're going to create the most impactful value added fan experience in the world, not just bells and whistles, but actually do stuff that matters. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, Mercedes-Benz, we, we do consider it, uh, you know, again, the busiest stadium in the world. On an average year, we've got 50 plus major events. And those events are, you know, 45 to 50,000 or more tickets distributed a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we end up distributing over 3 million tickets over the course of a year. Um, we get over half a million unique individuals and, and honestly more than that, because we really don't have insight into the like actual specific individuals that come in, which is one of our kind of pain points. Um, and, and of those half million people that come through in a given year, only about 35,000 are for our core, you know, kind of anchor teams, the Falcons and Atlanta United. So we just got diversity that comes through in terms of the events. You know, it's, um, you know, obviously we've got things like college football and concerts. Taylor uh, was amazing to have here. Um, you know, but we have the Super Bowl. We've had national championship games. We've had, you know, the SEC championship game every year, MLS Cup, Elton, John. Um, we also have, you know, over, you know, since the stadium opened over six, over 600 private events, which are our major sources for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had three motion pictures filmed here, um, uh, two weddings and 10 prompts. So, <laughs> you know, we, we get the diversity here. And, and yep. from the technical part of that, um, you know, it's built really on my teammate, Danny uh, Branch, who is our CIO, built an amazing technical foundation. And when we talk about that, that enabling layer that our CIOs are responsible for of just communication and connectivity, you know, be it from, you know, we've got a, again, I can probably go a little bit deeper on this group with a, you know, sure. a, a full fiber to the desktop pond network where we're, we're pushing stuff around. We've got over 45,000 miles of fiber in the building. Um, we've got you know, Wi-Fi 6, we got DAS, we got our, you know, all this stuff is in there. And wherever we need connectivity in there, we've got it. We've got data centers. We've got, you know, the ability that when 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 I get to come around, which, you know, my job is just to come in and break stuff and and um, and, and do new things and, and things that are different. Um, I have this amazing foundation to push off of where I'm not, you know, having to worry about that. It, it's pretty amazing yeah. um, what we have here at Mercedes-Benz. Well, because one of the things you said to me when we were getting ready for this interview today was that you had no interest in being a CIO. You mm-hmm. really enjoy being the CTO. Is it because you intend to stay hands-on with the technology and just 
Yeah. You don't want to get dragged off into that that top leadership circle. Yeah, we we're supposed to keep that private between me and you. That wasn't right. I'm just kidding. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, CTO for me is, just, is one of those things where we're really looking for new ways of using technology to solve new business problems. And that's kind of maybe my definition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it requires you to be a little riskier um, and, and a little more uh, tolerant to pain in your own life. And, um, you know, I think that's that's cool. Um but um, you know the the ability to build and create and just explore is is what I really like about the role that I at least have here um, at, at AMBSC. Okay, and Jeremy, what do you hear? What do you work with the CIOs and other CTOs, other senior IT mm-hmm. leaders that are part of your uh, business work as the the software company? What mm-hmm. do you hear that is similar to what Carl was just talking about? Mm-hmm. So, uh, as with respect to sort of the technologies at play, um, I think that a lot of companies are starting to embrace riskier technologies, artificial intelligence. I mean, we're going to talk about that more later, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're starting to look at technology as being a core piece of their business. Which, I mean, fifteen years ago, when I was becoming an engineer, uh, you know, it wasn't quite as as prominent of, of a piece of your business, right? You're focusing mm-hmm. more on how we're selling to customers and how we're kind of driving um, our, our revenue streams uh, through marketing and things like that. And, and now, because we've had this explosion of technology in the past 10 to 15 years, everybody is all in on software, right? You've heard the quote mm-hmm. that software is eating the world. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would argue it's kind of corrupting the world in ways because bad, there's a lot of bad software out there, which is kind of our mission in life is to try and solve mm-hmm. for the bad software that exists uh, and all the legacy systems that are kind of sitting around and not really adding value to your top line. Um, yeah. But I'm excited about the types of technologies that people are beginning to embrace. And even going back to artificial intelligence and a lot of engineers were scared of it when it came out. Uh, honestly, it's just math. Uh, I know I'm very, that's a reductionist view. It's a very awesome and cool technology. But mm-hmm. um, embracing these sort of newer ways of working, things like Wi-Fi 6 that Carl was talking about, putting fiber in the entire building is amazing because latency is going to be next to nothing and you can do amazing real-time things with yeah. um, high, high, um, high highly efficient technologies that are across that building. I I agree. I think Carl has, you have like the coolest stadium on the planet. It is one of the most technologically advanced stadiums, even back to some of the, the projects that we're going to talk about that we've done with y'all would not be possible if you did not have that found, that sort of foundry of here's all of the amazing work that we've put into creating one of the most technologically advanced stadiums in the world. So my CIOs, the people I'm talking to are looking for ways, how do we look to the future of the technology that's coming down the pipe? And again, my background mm-hmm. is in academics and research, and I did some work on some of the first multi-touch drivers before the iPhone existed. So it's mm-hmm. cool to see kind of the things that I did um, you know, in academic research and, and all the conversations about these amazing technologies that people are starting to embrace. It's cool to see people turn those into products and to deploy those out to make people's lives better, right? Again, going back to fan experience, Carl, I'm sure you're going to talk about all the awesome stuff that's in the stadium that make it seamless and make it a, a cool experience to walk in and go to a game or go to a concert and to kind of reduce the friction of mm-hmm. what your customer is doing. So pivot that away from fan experience, CIOs and CTOs, your job is to reduce the friction from yes. a technology perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And Ken Beck actually calls, uh, he 
those of you who know Kent Beck, he's like a god among men and developers speak. Uh, but but he, was, <laughs> I was talking to him and LinkedIn, and and he describes technical debt as a form of friction. And so we need to be thinking yeah. as we embrace more technologies and we look at what we're trying to achieve for our CEOs. How do we align our business strategy from a technology perspective to reduce that friction and to yeah. make everyone's lives better from a developer experience perspective, fan experience, customer experience, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um. And go and Carl, talk about some of the things you've done that have made that fan experience frictionless at the yeah. stadium. So some really, there's some real obvious and upfront ones, and there's other things that we're we're still working on and trying to mm-hmm. figure out. But basically, we look at friction as anything that keeps you from you know getting what you want and enjoying the, the event that you came here to see. Um, yeah. and, and sometimes you know we. Fans want a little bit of friction in the stand. They want to walk around. They believe it or not, they want to wait in line and and look at some things. Other times they don't. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, areas that we've, we've kind of hit on are um, things like replacing the traditional um, old school magnetometers, where you'd walk through and everyone would beep and you'd get wanded and everything else. We worked with an awesome company called Evolve um, that featured more of a, a, a open lane kind of way to walk through and, and it reduced our touch point to about 10% under that really about 8% of fans now kind of need to get checked and, and moved. And we can move through, you know, about four times the volume than we could through a normal one. We were, we had a tremendous cost savings by doing that and a huge, uh, fan experience gain, but it's letting people, you know, go there. The challenge with that was we we had a bottleneck or a friction point there, and as soon as we removed it, we created another one at the turnstile. And so we then kind of moved to adjust to that to start looking at using things like uh, biometric authentication on, you know, doing things where we really saw um, what slowed people down was when they had especially multiple tickets and getting their phone out and having that phone ready. And, and there wasn't a way for the prepared fan to get, you know, not get caught behind four unprepared fans. And so we worked with our partners at Delta who have done some similar work in this space. And we created Delta fly-through lanes where uh, fans can for free, just before they come in, they snap a selfie real quick and they walk up, the screen recognizes them. It says, you know, again, welcome, Jeremy. You've got four tickets. Yep. And you walk in and you're, you're all set to go. And it, it really, again, it's kind of a 4X multiplier for us on getting uh, fans through. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going opt in only, um, you know, we don't mandate anyone do anything that way, but, um, we've developed a pretty loyal following on that of people that yeah. do it. Also found that, um, fans are more than willing to do it even one time, uh, about a quarter of our fans that use it are only went to one event at Mercedes Benz last year, um, or one Falcons game, I should say. And, you know, they read their note before you go, they say, Hey, this is going to save me time. No problem. I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. Um, once we're in the stadium, we've then begun again, trying to work again, how can we get rid of lines? How can we get rid of um, uh, of, of bottlenecks, especially when you know what you want? And so we've got two kind of technologies we've, we've experienced with their experiment with there. One is we've installed, installed um, three, we've got a fourth one coming frictionless stores where you basically tap a credit card right now and um, you walk in, you grab what you want, you just walk out and there's no checkout, there's nothing else you get charged for what you grab. Our partners at iFi were awesome uh, with that, and we continue to expand out with that. And what we found there was it was kind of a slow ramp up, but once, especially our, our fans that have been there once, like they knew exactly what to do, and they knew exactly, hey, I, it's it's a timeout. I know I can make it to iFi and back before that we get back from a timeout, and you know that hmm. definitely you know drove an uptick in sales without cannibalizing nearby. 
And the other area we've really experimented with is um, expend, extending that biometric entry experience to the ordering stand. And we've worked on um, with one of our partners, some uh, biometric um, cocktails um, called uh, Spirited. And that's again, kind of a beta, a closed beta we have right now. We'll be experiment, we'll be ex expanding again for United season a little bit, but with this one, you can walk up, basically again, authenticate with uh, your face, do age verification, do payment. Um, and just have the machine unlock. You can self-serve yourself a cocktail and get out of there. And that's again, you know, kind of a combination between reducing the friction, doing some research into fans wanting more, you know, um, mixed drink access, and our ability to kind of connect those systems together. Uh, really, a lot of us where Jeremy's team kind of came in to help us create that that experience. Okay, um, and I'm thinking of too how you uh, had explained to me earlier that. There is so much technology in the stadium that mm -hmm. you operationally you have to you, you, you can't just run in and break stuff and apply it. You also everything has to play well together. Yeah. Is there a particular way that you approach that with your small but mighty team? <laughs> you know, it's funny because that, that small but mighty team extends to not just our dev team; it expands to everyone at the stadium. And so, here's a good example. Okay. Um, two years ago, a year and a half ago, we had the, uh, the, the 2022 Peach Bowl on New Year's Eve uh, at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And in that game, um, the final kick was, the uh, final field goal attempt was kicked right before the stroke of midnight, hit the ground right after the stroke of midnight. The game was over at that point. And we had a Falcons game ready to go by 11 o'clock the next morning, right? So we had a transition from one game to the next in 11 hours. Um, yeah. We had, um, uh, for that first one, we had 71,000 orders go through our food and beverage system. The next one, we had 50,000, or sorry, 36,000 go go back to back like that, right? So yeah. as we're talking about introducing new technologies like Hi-Fi, like, like, like uh, Spirit, we've got to make sure that works with the whole stadium and they can close out, they can reconcile, they can do their performance analysis and then get reset so that we can measure and go the next day. Mm -hmm. So when we're going through a pilot, okay, we got a little bit of grace, but if we're hoping to expand, it's got to fit in with the flow of how everyone does business. Yeah. Because our food and bed partners are going to tell me to pound sand if I make them go through five different procedures to close out of, of a stadium. Mm -hmm. And the role that that you and your team are playing in enabling that, Jeremy, talk a little bit about that. So I think it, what's awesome, there's a duality between what Carl's talking about with the fan experience and what mm -hmm. we're talking about for developer experience. Um, mm -hmm. Small but mighty is, is, a, is a very important uh, approach to innovation. Um, th there's a lot of psychology around the larger your teams are, the less effective they are. There's a thing called Dunbar's number, which is uh, applied mm -hmm. specifically to social situations, but it actually maps to professional. There's some studies that have been done that show that it also maps to some professional situations as well. Mm -hmm. Smaller teams are more communicative. They can have chats um, off the cuff to solve problems more quickly. You avoid yep. design by committee because there's typically a captain that just stands up and starts you know, being the quarterback of the team. Anyone who's been in a team sort of sees this, right? And, and these are the types of things that, that our company has embraced as a, as a culture and as a way of life. And you know, these are the chats that Carl and I had early on is how do you achieve more with less? How do you build a team that is excited to come in and work every day and execute and avoid the friction of the things that get in their way, right? Yeah. So again, going back mm -hmm. to what Carl said, 
his obsession is reducing friction in the stadium. My obsession is reducing friction on the development production floor so okay. that we can embrace ideas like developer experience. Uh, we can do CICD correctly without 15 mm -hmm. toll gates and you know 10 cabs, which I'm sure some of your listeners have experienced or maybe even implemented uh, systems like this. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it certainly slows you down. And yeah. one of the things that I've, I've enjoyed watching Carl do is challenge that status quo of, hey, okay. we can go faster. We, we can do more with less. Yes, we need the right bodies on the floor to do it, but we can get a lot more done by focusing on reducing friction insider engineering teams and yes. uh, getting a smaller team to do more by empowering them. And I, I want to actually pivot over for a minute or two to talk about when you say the developer experience, it sounds like it's frictionless, but it's also more empowered. I want you to explain that a little bit more. Yeah. It was, uh, it's, it's one of our, our favorite buzzwords for this conversation today, but it's something that I, I don't think I've ever talked with a CIO in a couple of decades now where talent acquisition and retention wasn't incredibly high on their list, usually in the top three. And in the last few years, a real focus on building up that internal engineering expertise. You know, all the things that got outsourced 10 years ago, they're all in source now and everybody wants more of these incredibly talented developers who can make this kind of thing happen. So what is different now about the developer experience and what CIOs need to be paying attention to versus just a few years ago? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's it's a very complicated question yeah. <laughs> uh, because we're dealing we're dealing with the psychology of human beings here, right? Yeah. Um, I think one of, one of the big changes that I've seen, and you you pointed it out, is in sort of the late '90s and early 2000s, there was a, a rush to offshore, and there was a rush to um, commoditize software engineering because for for good reasons we thought that well, this is about cost savings, and all I have to do is mm -hmm. ship the right spec to the right people and I can get yeah. output that produces some form of widget that I can plug into my systems and it, it goes and makes me money. We know that that is in fact not true now, right? Through the scrum renaissance of the 2010s on into what we're seeing today, which is people are beginning to even question scrum and say, wait a minute, is this even the right process? We're not sure. So the developer experience is an outgrowth of the DevOps movement, if y'all remember. Mm -hmm. um, that was another buzzword about five years ago where we yeah. applied agile to operations and now all of a sudden we are pushing to production every day. Whereas companies like Microsoft, which I worked for, were, were doing that before this, right? So we're, we're, we're seeing people focus more on productivity as, as an obsession in the engineering team, right? And productivity is a function of many things. It's a function of proper inputs, which produce good outputs. It's a function of psychological safety in your team mm -hmm. so you understand that people can raise their hands when they feel like they're doing something sideways or they're not certain about a particular decision. They can raise their hands and challenge that. And it's also a function of all of our, our what I like to call our software pipeline, which is product to, to UX, to development, to, de to DevOps, or your platform team, which is the new hotness. There's another buzzword, right? Platform teams. All of this produces yeah. an outcome, right? So yeah. the, the, the product people produce the business problem and the challenge you're trying to solve. And then that flows through my pipeline and comes out the other side as a piece of software, right? Pretty simple, right? The picture is clear. Where developer experience really shines is when we're talking about how efficiently and effectively an engineering team can push that code out to prove a hypothesis that product has bet the farm on, right? If Carl says, I think I can increase fan experience, I think I can get 100,000 people, more people through our lines every day if we tested this one little tweak 
to this system over here. He needs to be able to do that, right? He needs to be empowered to run that experiment to test it and see if it is in fact something that produces value for the company. Developer experience is, is I as an engineer am sitting in my dev team and when I hear that from Carl, one, I know why. Two, I understand the business outcomes of that. Three, I'm empowered to go out and do those experiments and, and build code in a way that's not so locked down except in regulated. It's a totally different. We'll, we'll put the regulation, the regulated industries aside for a minute because this doesn't yes. apply to my banks and my healthcare people out there. Well, kind of. Um, and to, to, for those engineers to enjoy what they're doing and to be able to feed back into the, in, the, the engineering life cycle. So I'm not just a cog in a wheel sitting here taking a ticket, reading my five requirements, writing my code, pushing to production, and that's all I do, right? Mm-hmm. Our engineering teams need to be able to question product, question UX, and have conversations about is this in fact adding business value? Because my context is I've written 10 systems that kind of do this too, or maybe in another job, I wrote a piece of software that did exactly what you're looking for and it didn't work. So maybe we need to talk about that and me feed my information back into the broader team. So it's more about developer experience is about not treating teams as cogs and wheels and as actual business value. Because as we said, software is eating the world. We need to lean into the experts that have created assets that our biggest companies rely on and get their input back into what we're building. Yes. Okay. You've been well, well, nodding sorry. quite a bit there, Carl. I want you to weigh in yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Jeremy... It best. I mean, developers are happiest when they're building and creating and being productive and they understand what they're doing contributes to the bottom line. That's that's yeah. it. And when we are doing things like being stuck in monolithic old um, dev stacks, when we can't push to production, we can't check in code, when troubleshooting takes, you know, three days because of poor documentation or poor standards, those are things that are inside of our control that we can help to standardize, mitigate and get rid of. Then, you know, it does become that external relationship and that ability to partner with the business to do the other areas, the UI, UX, the product understanding, the product management of having the right, you know, the right pipeline there, depending on how big your team is, to be able to voice those concerns. We, we had an issue this morning where we had a very eager client who had a product idea they were guaranteed. And they came to us and told us the entire way they wanted it built and were like, look, I love the enthusiasm. Help us understand the outcome because we've done this before. Like help us, we can smooth this out and get to a better spot with you. But that takes a little bit of them also understanding that, hey, we're not just a bunch of nerds here. Like we mm-hmm. we can think about business problems. And that's where I think the the that level of communication, I think that's what makes a really good, um, I'll call them a technical teammate because they could be any mm-hmm. number of roles, but your ability to have normal, you know, those those kind of, outcome-based conversations that don't necessarily get locked into the tech with members of the business really yeah. is what brings value to, to you as a person. Um, well, that's it, the reason why I'm where I'm at is because I can talk to football coaches. I can talk to, you yeah. know, whatever. Um, otherwise, I would just, I would, would, I'd be doing the same thing I was doing 20 years yeah. ago. So you can talk to football coaches. You can talk to yeah. technical people. You can also talk to business people. Yeah. And help them. Uh, Jeremy, the uh, piece you wrote for InfoWorld on this uh, last year, the headline was Manage Morale, Not Metrics 100%. for a More Effective Engineering Team. Do you both think this is something that kind of everybody gets now? Or is this going to be is this going to be news <laughs> to anybody? 
I think I'll go first. I, I, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put my name out there for the Flame Wars uh, in the comments. I, I don't mm-hmm. think, I think this is a thing we all know about. Yeah. But you look at Dora and, and some of these other metric frameworks, uh, check out Abi Noda on LinkedIn. I'm going to plug him. He's a friend of mine and he has an entire mm-hmm. company that's designed to talk about developer experience. And he has a lot of um, studies that he's done with uh, Google and podcasts that he's had with Spotify VPs where we discuss these things like Dora metrics and, and what are they? what value are they providing, right? When, when I said manage morale, not metrics, I'm not saying that we shouldn't measure what we're doing. Telemetry is incredibly important, but when you start measuring, uh, when you start pushing metrics, right, there's Goodhart's law, right? Uh, when, when a measure ceases, when a measurement becomes a target, it ceases to become a good measure, right? It's oh, more about okay. having conversations with your engineering team and using metrics as telemetry to pivot the organization towards a more effective way of solving outcomes. What Carl, you said it best, right? Get, bring me outcomes as a, as a product organization, as a business, bring me outcomes, right? If I'm your VP of engineering and you come to me with a prescriptive way of solving a problem, I'm just going to say no, because I want mm-hmm. an outcome. What are we trying to do because my team are experts, right? They're software engineers that I have hired and spent all my time and effort creating a, a culture where they can maintain productivity and execute against your problems as, as a business. Bring me the outcomes you're trying to you're trying to solve for, and I will in turn make sure that they're happy, well-fed, cared for, excited, psychologically safe, focusing on root causes as opposed to blaming people for issues, which is a big in, issue with infighting, right, that we have in there. Organization. Like yeah. as a CIO, I have too many problems to worry about because <laughs> you're managing like a group of people, and people are very hard to to deal with. Like I need I need people to to cut me some slack and and make my job easier. Right? Is that is what yeah. I'm telling others? Is make my life. Please don't make my life hard where I have to manage you and also manage all these people that are just fighting. And it's yeah, it's fun. Yeah. So well said. So well. <laughs> Well, we have a question from our alert and watching audience, and it actually goes back to something we touched on earlier. For an organization of AMB sports' size and kind, how are the responsibilities split between the CTO and the CIO? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an, that seems to be a very important way that you're making it all work. So talk about yeah. that in a little more detail. So for us, the way we split that up is it's probably a little too generic, but but uh, I'll put it this way: as primary CIOs primarily run the business, CTO is is a little bit more grow the business in their focus. Um, I don't focus a ton on um, things that I don't support things. Generally speaking, mm-hmm. I more find strategic initiatives, explore can we execute on them, you know, um, make sure that we connect up into our business into sustainable, integrated ways that use our existing systems, philosophies, security requirements, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And then we turn them over and operationalize them. Um, and we start on the next thing. We also handle things like data analytics. Um, we'll be probably driving AI for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Our CIO handles, you know, infrastructure, making sure that we're like, you know, the, the things that the lights have to stay on to do like that is his job and frankly it's, it's awesome because i've got great partners in both danny branch and kevin pope who are our kind of reformer and our current uh, cio like mm-hmm. we have we spend so like in fact i have um i have drinks with him after we, we don't drink as much as it's portrayed on this podcast but um <laughs> we're going out right after this just because we catch up like hey what are you working on what are you thinking about yeah. and we just are constantly pushing on each other on hey how can we get better here but kevin should have to make sure that hey we can sell you know, we can sell hot dogs on Sunday. We can have tickets up yep. on Sunday. We can do this. And mine is like, hey, here's a new way we can sell hot dogs. Here's a new way. And 
it's going to eventually fit in and, and really make a difference for us mm-hmm. um, business-wise. So that, that's kind of the way that I would split that up. Yeah. Um, it's probably not the gardener answer, but... Um, Ooh, thank you. Yeah, that's the way that we would do it. I know. Um, and the second question we have, and this one is even more fun, it's another question for Carl. Do you foresee integrating fantasy games for the fans, giving mm-hmm. that rich hybrid experience of fans attending games at the stadium and also playing yeah. games? Okay. Talk about multitasking, right? right? So you're, you're getting a couple of answers from me on this, right? Okay. One is um, I'm 47 years old. Um, I grew up working for a football team. And so because of that, like, I absolutely hate fantasy because you should be rooting for a team, not a player. And like, that's just old man yells at cloud, you know, kind of, I, I know that, right? So I just, I wanted to state that so you guys have like a, where I'm coming from. Okay. Um, when it comes to integrating it, we know that fans, when they come to the stadium, like they do a myriad of things. And um, I was looking for the numbers right before, so I couldn't find it, but we do terabytes of data over our networks. Um, for major events. And so we know things like, um, you know, fantasy and social and video uploads and all that stuff. We have to facilitate that because they want to do that. Um, as far as integrating some of that stuff in, I think that's where we got to look at where's the value add for us. Um, I'm a big fan of let's find the things that people do well. And then if it's, if it adds, let's bring it in and do it. But like, you know, for example, I don't know what value you get by going to the Falcons to manage your your fantasy app or your fantasy team and see what's going on there, right? Just people that do it better. We, I'd rather partner with them, you know, advertise with them, gain them as a sponsor, support them that way and let them kind of drive and, and do things that way. Then mm-hmm. make what frankly would be a subpar product that other people do really, really well. Okay. Um, but point. we know that we need to support them from that the, the base connectivity, how they use our stadium perspective. If they can't get online, if they can't check their stats, if they can't send that video to, you mm-hmm. know, mom, um, it's over. Okay. <laughs> now, actually, that segues really nicely into something I wanted to ask about as well. And it has to do with behaviors, fan behaviors. The industry, your industry is very much back to business as usual. You know, sports events and concerts are sold out and in person and all that. But the fan behaviors have changed in the post-pandemic era. We talked about this a little. Uh, Get into that a bit about what has changed and what does that, what kind of ripple effect does that have on what you need to do? Yeah. Um, You know, I think one of the things that we've seen is, I think fans expect a little more, um, which is mm-hmm. great. Um, I think fans expect us to know a little bit more about them. I think uh, that is uh, becoming more and more table stakes is they don't want to be treated like fan 107320, which is my, you know, my ticket mm-hmm. master ID number. Um, they don't they, they want to be treated more as, hey, this is Carl at the very least and, and to do some things that way. And frankly, that's where I think um, you know, when we start talking about, you know, frictionless and biometrics and fan experience, there's really kind of two levers we really know that we need to pull as we're hitting on those use cases. One is, is personalization, um, just making people feel special in big or little ways, right? Mm-hmm. And that can be as little as your name on a screen. Uh, one of my favorite moments when we we're implementing Delta Fly through, we we're just doing it as a pilot, is a woman walked up, she she had her first time she had she had her face come up and said her name and she goes, She knows me and it was static. <laughs> like those are the moments, you know, like when they when when they see their name and their four tickets and the, the guy high fives his three friends that are with them. Like those are the cool moments that just you don't get from, you know, business as usual. 
And then, you know, that will go all the way up into, um, I want to be careful here, but like you know, respected purpose valued, value proofed, um, you know, generative AI on making sure that we're communicating with our fans, we're sending the right messages to them, especially when it involves the event day experience. Um, you know, there's, there's, we got stats all over the place, but, but 75% of the people that park at Mercedes Benz on game day buy their parking that day and don't realize how far out they need to park. A lot of those fans, and I don't have this number, but a majority of those fans get their tickets transferred to them or buy them within 48 hours of the event. We've got to be responsive and agile to message those fans and say, look, if you're parking, don't come all the way downtown because you're just going to have to turn around and go back out to one of these lots. Use one of these six lots. Here's a coupon for that code. But if Jeremy's coming, he's a season ticket member. I can't send him that message because I will lose all credibility. Instead to Jeremy, I got to say, hey, uh, we just implemented a new uh, license plate scanner at our gates. Let me know your license plate number and you'll be able to pull right in. Um, and and yeah. you'll do that, right? I need to be able to say, hey, welcome Jeremy to the event. Here's an extra five bucks because you're here early. Get a beer on us or get a soda on us probably. Is well, there's also a lot more expectation that things can 100%. be delivered in the moment, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not, it. that was one of the points <laughs> you made that, you know, the, the generations of season ticket holders buying things months in advance, that changed during the pandemic. The opportunist is, is the, the mm -hmm. profile uh, the persona that we call that, they're looking for, hey, is there something we can do mm -hmm. today? And how do those fans react and go? And they're not going to be your season ticket members, but they are going to be the ones that take advantage of things and interact and pay attention. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it's, and it's funny when you talk about, you know, the the ability to reply in real time, you'll to stay in that moment. Um, that's been a big capability we've had to build out is that ability to communicate and respond and even have awareness and, and near real time um believe it or not we're there's still a lot of our business that's on that 24 hour you know you know 2005 etl structure where you load in a flat file at 3 a.m and you, you know kick off a job at 4 a.m right i mean still a lot of that here yeah so okay yeah. let's and and that reminds me too i often ask my ctos and my cio guests to talk about what the digital business model means to their particular industry or company. And I, when you think about the Falcons and doing digital business, mm -hmm. what comes to mind? What is different about how you look at it now yeah. versus say a few years ago? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think when I think about especially our fans, it's, it's all about you know learning as much as we can about our fans in ways that are respectful and privacy-minded Okay. those in uh, to facilitate um, meaningful conversation to get them the information they want and to orchestrate amazing experiences that deliver them the products they want. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that that's probably what digital means to us um, in that spot. Mm -hmm. um, probably the the other side of that is operationally making sure that we run the most operationally efficient stadium in the world so that when we do things like flip from a Saturday to a Sunday game, we get the insights, we get the data, we get everything we need to um, mm -hmm. delivered in the, in the, in the ways we need it so that we can make the right decisions. You know, we can, we don't do this yet, but our ability to adjust product or offerings um, based on the, 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 um, 
people coming in. You know, that, that's an opportunity there. We have fan-friendly pricing in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, so we, we probably won't look at using that data to uh, tweak pricing levels. Um, you can come to our stadium and get a hot dog and a beer and pay, you know, seven bucks for combined, like for everything. Um, wow. it's, it's, it's a great place to watch a, a game. You really need to be here. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we're not going to look at, hey, you know, the CIO leadership live crowds coming in. Let's jack up prices, you know, 20 percent. <laughs> um, we're more looking at, hey, um, you know, Jeremy's a, a season ticket member who's been with us for five years. Let's make sure we're giving him a little something extra on the side. Yeah. God, everybody loves a coupon, don't they? Just <laughs> a little something to let you know that, hey, we know you, we care about you. And you're something yeah. you can have fun. And then yeah. for us, that helps generate a digital touch point so we can understand what you value and what you like and some of your preferences. Mm -hmm. Well, and the use of that word orchestration that yeah. I know that had, that came up a lot when we were getting ready for this show. And that I wondered, is that uh, becoming the chief technology officers essentially becoming more and more immersed in orchestration of this sort of work with the data and all? Is that a very common problem that other CTOs and CIOs across the sports and events industry are solving these days? Um, I think we're ahead of the curve a little mm -hmm. bit on that. I think we're seeing it a little bit early. Um, sports lags in general because okay. we because we can. I mean, Atlanta has an interesting challenge in that we don't have a hundred thousand person waiting list like the Pittsburgh Steelers do. We got to work to keep our fans happy, and we do. We have amazing teams here. Tamika Rich, who leads our fan experience group, mm -hmm. and I'm sorry for my little announcement that went off there. Um, but you know, they work. They work their tails off to do things to keep our fans interested, excited. We're number two in the NFL in fan experience, and we should have been number one. We were number one last year, and all of our numbers went up. But another stadium, I'm not going to say who they were. They went up just as well. I mean, that's like the battle for okay. the fan, you know, experience there, but. Yeah. yeah. Well, Battle of the Bands can be fun for everybody in a way. Well, one of the points you made, Jeremy, when we were talking earlier, you said seeing both Carl and AMB and the Falcons embrace this approach to kind of doing it right from the developer perspective, that kind of incredible amounts of time and data collected and then using it in a really good way. Uh, talk about that a little bit more. I, I take it that you don't see that with everybody you work with. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a it's a constant battle, right? Um, mm -hmm. AMBC is special and, and the, the entire sports entertainment sector is special because it's so data driven. Mm -hmm. um, you need to know, as Carl mentioned, about your fans to provide them a good experience, to be a good host, right? To right. give them that free hot dog on the side when they show up and they're a season ticket holder. Not every industry is that driven to be focused on that type of, of activity. I will say, though, that um, you said that sports lags a little bit, Carl. I, I think for y'all, I'm going to disagree. You, you all are on that cutting edge uh, because a lot of the companies that I still work with have challenges dealing with multiple integration points across all these SaaS yeah. products that people are buying these days. You know, okay. gone are the days of build uh, where build is favored when you're talking build versus buy. The software industry is, is combinatorially exploded with products that solve your problem and mm -hmm. corresponding salespeople that are selling you that product that mm -hmm. you you really have to think about integration as being a key piece of your digital yeah. strategy as a CIO, right? 
you know, you're folding your, your leads into Salesforce and then you're turning around and, and pushing that somewhere else. And then you want to take all this data and, and build some model on top of it to say, what are my customer personas? Who am I trying to go after? What's, what do they care about? How do I find those right buyers for my product? Um, XYZ and ABC. So, so I think, you know, the, the challenge is still there. And, and I, I find that specifically at AMBC, y'all do a really good job of that, of, of taking all of these disparate pieces of information and folding them into something that adds value. So I would look to you as a case study on how to do it right, because you guys have done a fantastic job. Appreciate that. We got to show the, the outcome of that, you know, and because we are pushing that. And I think for me in particular, like I see integrations and our ability to handle integrations as a core capability that we need to start picking up where historically that has been a use case that you have pushed off to your vendors, mm -hmm. right? I've got these three key products. You guys need to integrate with each other and you all figure it out. And, you know, maybe I'm paying a big fee for that. Maybe y'all are paying that big fee for that. Um, and, and we're paying, you know, doing something else. But um, what we're seeing now, especially since COVID, and it's not because of COVID at all. It's because of the maturity and the, the development cycle here is one, all of these products are investing heavily into that integration layer and capabilities. Yep. So everybody has that. Um, and two, they want to focus on their core product and not necessarily on integrations or that integration is becoming a whole separate business unit form, which are two different things. But by us, and leaning into that and our ability to handle that, it allows us to create a much more composable ecosystem here that lets us think more about how do we put a best of breed situation in place? How do we do better experimentation? Because we're not, I'm not having to say, hey, I want to test out autonomous bartending. Hey, uh, go partner with my biometrics company and do a full integration there. It's no, it's, you know, hey, Jeremy's team, you know, here's our API endpoint for our biometric authentication. Here's our payment endpoint. Here's our connective tissue layer. How do we make this work? Mm -hmm. um, and and that's to me where where that where that's so important. And it's we're able to do it now because we're no longer dealing with like DCOM and you know trying to integrate with stuff on servers that are behind seventeen firewalls and in a different you know. PCI compliant zone, we're dealing with APIs that are sitting on a SaaS hosted, you know, sending, you know, a SaaS based solution that it's just a matter of getting the right credentials to. You said well, DCOM, my brain just shut down. I'm sorry. I know. Isn't that fun? No. And you <laughs> two know exactly. You no, two know exactly you. what that means, but I'd be really hard put to tell you much about DCOM. No, thank um, you. But <laughs> it certainly sounds like the role of data architecture is pretty key here. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you want to take that first, Carl? You got you're it. You're the data guy. Come on, you're the nerd that sits behind you the You talk database. so eloquently. I, I'm like a state school guy. <laughs> you're like a Princeton guy. Whatever, man. I'm from, I'm <laughs> I don't know, Carl. I think yeah. you've been talking pretty well so far. Yeah, me too. Right. I grew we'll up make Jeremy take this one first then. <laughs> I grew up in a trailer in North Georgia. My Southern's going to come out here in a minute. You know, um, there. Good. <laughs> you both have been saying y'all the more relaxed you get. So yeah, that's for sure. I'm a Chicagoan yeah. by, by birth. So I'm betraying my roots. <laughs> yeah. um, my, my favorite one of those is all y'all when you're all, talking all about a whole mm. crowd of people. It's all right. So who wants to talk about data architecture? <laughs> I will start. So right. data is a glacier. Everybody knows that. Data's hard. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a back end developer by trade, just so y'all know. I'm 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 the guy that would talk to the database people and say, hey, this is the schema I want to implement. And they would tell me no and go rebuild it and hand it back to me right back in the day uh, when I was doing my rounds at 
various um, clients. So um, data architecture to me is incredibly important to get right up front. I've always been slightly more meticulous than your average software engineer when we're talking about data. Because there's a lot of really cool technologies out there like Code First Design, which you know Entity Framework does that and, and Hibernate mm-hmm. has a little bit of that too. Rails is great at sort of providing active records type stuff. And again, I'm spouting off nonsense, Mary Fran, but uh, the... The idea here is that data is something that has to be focused on early. And since we had the data warehousing boom, again, yet another technology boom in our lifetimes, that produced this thought process of, okay, we need to mine our data for interesting things to then turn into business value. It's even that much more important, especially with AI sort of, again, exploding onto the scene. Now it's even a hundred times more important that your data is is good. With AI, you could be a little bit more sloppy because AI is smart and it can train on models and things and figure out um, based on unstructured data what you're trying to do. But data architecture is a thing that I like to focus on when I'm talking to to CIO clients or friends or whatever. Whenever we're building a new platform or a new product, data architecture is one of the things that we sit down and have a chat around. How do we make sure that this is extensible moving forward? And how do we make sure that we can mine this? That's a question you weren't asking 10 years ago. Is 10 years ago, it's about how do I get it into persistence? That's all that matters that my data is there and my OLTP is doing the thing. And then OLAP came along and people were talking about cubes and crazy business analytics stuff. In, in 2024, what we care about is how do we turn data into a monetized business proposition? And I think that mm-hmm. we got to be careful about that because there's privacy implications, as y'all discussed. But mm-hmm. it's it's a very, very important thing to focus on when you're building your product or you're adding on to your existing product to get that right out the gate so you can feed that into your analytics team. Yeah. Uh, say the other area when it comes to data architecture is becoming more and more a word that I use all the time and I can't quite figure out how to actually implement it yet, but is data governance. Yeah, um, that's hard. You know, I think that's data governance at scale is going to be the next kind of layer to data architecture about what is this data? Is it accurate? Um, what's in it? How do we get to it? Who's using it, et cetera. Yeah. And that's going to really take off with some of the automated tools that are coming out there. You already have it with the Calibras and everything else. Mm-hmm. And EOPU is going to be Microsoft's attempt that they rebrand at some point a year and a half from now into something else mm-hmm. and, that, and it actually sticks. Um, and, and that data architecture is is really important. And the other area, though, that I think when you're talking integrations is equally important is system architecture. Mm. Understanding how you're moving stuff from one system to another. And that requires yep. you a, to obviously have a good understanding of the data architecture of both systems, or at least the interface you know, of those two. Um, but how are you transferring that data? How are you making sure that, you know, again, um, that, that's where that holistic view of your business is so important and it's so hard. It hurts, right? But you got to be yeah. thinking about, you know, A, B, C, D, E and like, all right, we need it to end up down here, but it's got a pinball through. It's like mm-hmm. playing diamonds or something. It's got to kind of figure that out. Okay. Well, let's now, I want to pivot over to AI. And I'm reminded one of the quotes I have from Carl when we talked earlier. He said, <laughs> today, AI is kind of dumb. Yeah. And, <laughs> I agree. So I'm going to make you extend on that a little bit. And, but consequently, it really is going to be some very big changes Um, in uh, more probably than any part of the IT world or the technology world. Developers are affected by this. And there's so many, there's so much care and feeding around the right or the wrong data ending up in your, in your large language models. So, um, I'm sure you didn't mean anything quite as simplistic as I threw it out there, Carl, but go go ahead and, and tell us about where you are with AI. Mm-hmm. So AI, I said AI is dumb. 
as um, <laughs> anything you look at now has AI worked into some kind of tagline, some kind of something. Mm-hmm. And when you talk with people, it just seems like people have learned that they can use the word AI and they, it's like they're genie in a bottle that gets them what they want. And it, it, it means that you can avoid certain things and not having to do things like, hey, what are you actually wanting to do? And where does the data actually, and, and I get that there's like, it's probably not as like, I definitely think about things in rows and tables still a little bit, right? I know that there's a rigidity to me that I need to soften on, but like when I have a, a coach come in and say, man, I want to use AI to tell us what plays to call. I'm like, all right, it, it, you just don't, you don't, you don't say, hey, point to this and say, what place should I run? Like, there's some some work involved in that. And some of that work involves, you know, again, some of the data architecture and data governance and making sure that we've got the right things there. Some of that is in making sure we've got the outcomes determined that we want to get to um, and, and and be out there. But um, I think I think it's it's one of those things to where it's almost like when you had that friend that said, hey, let's go build an app. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great idea and it's good and we need to build an app. But like, you don't just... Like there's so much that goes into it that to do it correctly, it, it's almost like oversimplified. Um, yeah. It, yes. yes. And I go well, on record with Keith a lot on this in, yes. in the Tech Talk show. Well, and one of the points you made, uh, you did a, one of your articles on this was about um, AI, and you made the point that it has broken out from fringe curiosity to cultural obsession. <laughs> so I I thought that was that was very poetic. That may have been your editor, but it may have also just been you. <laughs> pro, I, yeah, pro, I, my editor and I just sit around and I talk to them, and they just write whatever nonsense comes out of my mouth. So you know, <laughs> okay. I don't know. Maybe I said it, maybe I'm not. But he's smarter than me. No, I, I think you know. And the funny thing, Carl, I, I I hadn't heard that before. What, so here's a fun thought exercise: What if two coaches are using AI to call plays? What's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. They're probably just going to deadlock, and you're just going to run the perfect plays. And you have a zero sum game. It's not fun. Nobody wants to watch it. Mm-hmm. Right? So who knows? Yeah, AI is one of those things that you know. I, I studied AI in school. Right? I have a master's degree in computer science. I'm so mm-hmm. I took AI with Charles Isbell, who's an amazing human being. Um, and I implemented all those algorithms. Right? I wrote using a framework, K-means. I, I spent times understanding what these things do. And it's all statistics, it's all math. It's very, very cool. And it can add immense value to humanity once we figure out all of the rules and regulations around it. But mm-hmm. I, I agree with Carl. Right now, AI is dumb. It's just a buzzword that people use to sell you their product. Yeah. And we're, we're going to figure this out, right? In, in probably five or 10, uh, I don't know, five or 10 months, somewhere in there, we'll be like, all right, we're kind of heading on that adoption curve. We know that AI is good for things. We know it's great for increasing developer productivity. We know it's yeah. awesome for solving this, this base yep. set of problems in our world. Mm-hmm. And it's going to become the next tool that everybody uses to make their lives better. The thing I love the most about AI is specifically chat GPT is it solves a lot of human computer interaction problems that people have with computers, right? I studied Mm -hmm. HCI in my undergrad and what that basically is speaking to is can my grandmother jump on my computer and talk to it and say, hey, I want to learn a new recipe for cornbread. And all of a sudden it's like, here you go. You can do that now. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. I used to do this with Wikipedia because I'm a nerd and I just read Wikipedia for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So now you have a computer that you can talk to that can give you information in a real-time way that you can learn. It has huge implications in education. It has huge implications across the entire spectrum of technology. But as of right now, be wary. If anybody tacks AI on the end of their product name, you should be like, well, do you really know what you're doing? (laughs) 
Well, it's, it's, it's like there's a legitimate, like AI can solve a ton of problems and like 100% will be using AI to help us understand and analyze and, hey, is this an effective play call against this mm-hmm. defense given the yep. historical context of who we're going against and what formations we come out in and what defense they're playing and, you know, what I mean, 100% there'll be some of that out there. Yes. But it's not quite as simple as saying, hey, what's the play call to run? Said, well, it, 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 it won't start there. It'll get there. But It'll it get there, but yeah, it's, that's a reductionist view. And and again, it's just because people don't understand yeah. it. And and as it as more information gets out there, and people start understanding what it is and what this tool is good for, just like when the iPhone came out, it was a little bit easier to understand what you do with an iPhone. It's a phone, but there's yeah. also so many implications to the platform. And you know, yeah. I have a calculator in my pocket now, which I didn't have when I was growing up. Growing up, right? I grew up as a millennial. I didn't have the internet. If I wanted a calculator, I had to go to my car and get one. Now I just whip my phone out and I can do like complex algebra on my phone if I want to. Yeah. And it's more of a supercomputer in your pocket now. Yeah. Compared for to, sure. Yeah. I just, when I think about the potential of technology and some of the obvious things we all want to get to, I always think of a, a story from when my son was uh, probably three years old and he had put a VCR tape, anybody remember VCR issues? Yeah. Put a VCR tape in to watch, I think it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And he stood there looking at it for a minute. And then he leaned over and he said, play. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he is today a senior software engineer at Google. And awesome. <laughs> so, you know, the 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 way technology is advancing and um, the the way it remains so fascinating to talk about, I think, has been very well demonstrated by you both today. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for the CIO Leadership Live uh, episode. Fun. It's been wonderful having you here. Thanks for yeah, having me. Hang out with J-Dove. I'll, I'll do it. So let's go do it. There <laughs> you go. There you Beers go. After this, right? Beers after this. Beers after this. <laughs> Beers after this. <laughs> Uh, wild I, leap in Atlanta at five o'clock. So that's okay, and I do think we've used the word beer more often on this episode. Wait, it should be with developers. Yes. So we win. Code and writing code is fun. Exactly. It should always be fun. Sports is fun. The two together should be really fun, and it's yeah. not. So well, and I've enjoyed learning so much more about the developer experience and how yeah. we need to focus on that. And a lot of it does seem to boil down to. It, treating people like the yeah. the incredibly smart human beings that they are. Yes, and 100%. Them be creative and letting them build. You exactly. know, uh, I'll say one last thing about that. When we look for technical people, we look for analysts in football. Analysts love coming to work for us. Like, oh, I can work in sports? Killer, I'll do it. When we yeah. go to developers, developers could give two shits if they come to work in sports or not. <laughs> like, they, they want to build and create and have an environment where they can do that. Right. That's all that they care about. And if it's in sports, cool. If it's in cool. where. Cool. If it's, you know, healthcare, cool. They just want to be able to do cool things. And that's been true for a while. Mastery and purpose, right? Yep. Some industries get this a little bit better rap than others. And and I I do agree. It's all about the culture that you provide and good leadership. And can I come in and do something fun? Yep. Okay. All right, good. Well, this has really been fun with both of you today. So thank you. Yes. If you joined us late today, do not despair. You can watch the full episode later here today on LinkedIn, but also on CIO.com and, of course, on CIO's channel on YouTube. Leadership Live is also available as an audio podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And I hope that you enjoyed this double-barreled conversation about developers with CTO Carl Pierberg of AMB Sports and Entertainment and CEO Jeremy Duval of Seven Factor Software.
We're going to be back again next month on Wednesday, March 20th at noon Eastern with Karen Higgins Carter, who is the CIO of Gilbane Building Company. So we'll be talking a lot about the construction industry and some of the issues going on there. Please do take a moment to subscribe to CIO's YouTube channel, where you can find more than 125 similarly fascinating episodes and conversations of C on CIO Leadership Live. And we also have expanded around the world. There's now six international editions of Leadership Live podcast in places like Canada, India, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, and the Middle East. So join us. We'll be watching for you. And thanks for watching us today.